Hi everybody. This is part eight of our dental hygiene board review. And for this section, we're going to be covering medical conditions and emergency situations. So as you know, I have been um, doing a review from several different books and notes. So the first one I'm going to start with is a review from the actual course. My teacher was the bomb and she taught us a lot. And then this review she gave us is very, very good. It's not even that long. It's like 42 slides. So we'll go ahead and get started. <laughs> it starts with causes of abnormal bleeding. There's six. Number one, blood dyscrasias. An example is thrombocytopenia. These are disorders or diseases with abnormal blood counts. Number two, genetic disorders such as hemophilia or von Willebrand's disease. Number three, liver dysfunction as in cirrhosis or hepatitis. Number four, HIV or AIDS infections. Five, leukemia or lymphoma. Six, drug-induced clotting abnormalities. So these are all reasons why your patient might have abnormal bleeding. So again, blood dyscrasias, genetic disorders, liver dysfunctions, HIV or AIDS, leukemia, lymphoma, or drug-induced clotting abnormalities. Some oral manifestations of abnormal bleeding. Uh, there's five. Number one, bleeding gingiva, spontaneous. Number two, petechiae of the oral mucosa, little spots. Uh, number three, ecchymosis of the oral mucosa. Number four is jaundice, so the result of a liver condition. Number five, brown deposits on teeth, and this is due to chronic bleeding and blood degradation. There are four steps of hemostasis. She did tell us that anything in red is like really important, so I will um, really enunciate on the, the notes that are in red. So there's four steps of hemostasis that's listed. Number one, transient arteriolar, arteriolar vasoconstriction. Number two, primary hemostasis, which is when you get the formation of the platelet plug, and that's in red. Number three, secondary hemostasis, which is formation of the blood clot, and that's in red as well. Um, it says coagulation cascade leads to thrombin formation. Thrombin converts fibrinogen to fibrin. Fibrin invades the platelet plug to stabilize it and then the blood clot forms, that's in red. Number four, negative feedback. You have antithrombosis in red via circulating plasmin, breaks down the clot and prevents vessel blockage. So the four steps of hemostasis, you have artery vasoconstriction, then you have primary hemostasis where the platelet plug forms, secondary hemostasis where the blood clot forms and negative feedback where you get the antithrombosis. 
that prevents the vessel blockage. The next slide is genetic bleeding disorders. There are two. You have the Von Willebrand's disease and hemophilia A and B. Von Willebrand's disease, VWD, is a platelet disorder. This is the most common, and this is in red, this is the most common inherited bleeding disorder. It is autosomal dominant. It affects 1% of the population. Then we have hemophilia A, and this part's in red. Most common inherited coagulation disorder. It is X-linked recessive, primarily in males, and there's heavy bleeding after an injury or trauma, usually delayed onset and life-threatening. So again, the most common inherited bleeding disorder is von Willebrand's disease. The most common inherited coagulation disorder is hemophilia A, and there's heavy bleeding after an injury or trauma. The patient could bleed to death. Next is liver disease. The two liver diseases are cirrhosis and hepatitis. And with liver disease, you have a decreased clotting. Cirrhosis is scarring of the liver tissue. You have a decreased blood flow and a decreased liver function. Causes are alcoholism, hepatitis, fatty liver disease, and there's idiopathic uh, cirrhosis as well, meaning that we don't know why. Um, dental implications of cirrhosis, there's three. You have an unpredictable metabolism of medications. You have a decreased clotting factors, which means increased bleeding, and you have a high risk of infection, including oral infections. Uh, hepatitis is inflammation of the liver. It, it's actually liver cell death. Causes are viral, mono, TB, and then drugs such as alcohol or chemotherapy. Hepatitis, there's five types of hepatitis. You have hepatitis A, hepatitis E, which are both transmitted via the oral fecal route. There's no carrier state. And then you have hepatitis B, C, and D. You can't get hepatitis D unless you have hepatitis B, I think. So there's not really a very big chance in getting that. But anyways, they're all transmitted via blood or sexual contact and also transmitted across the placenta. Um, the chronic carrier state varies. So hepatitis B, there is a 5 to 10% chance. Uh, hepatitis C, there's an 80 to 90%. And hepatitis D, there's a 20 to 70%. So that varies quite a bit. Um, because really, it, it depends on if you have the other hepatitis already or not. Clinical findings. Initially, there's no symptoms or just flu-like symptoms. Fatigue, fever, nausea, vomiting, anorexia. And jaundice develops one to two weeks after the flu-like symptoms. Um, it says there's no vaccine for hepatitis C, but there actually is a vaccine now. So I'm not really sure if that's going to be on boards or not. But it does say to know how to interpret interpret the hepatitis B lab results. And 
dental implications. I will go over the, the lab results in just a second. The dental implications of a patient with hepatitis B or hepatitis C. If active hepatitis B or C, no elective dental treatment. Emergency dental treatment in a hospital setting only. If chronic hepatitis B or hepatitis C with significant liver dysfunction, the patient can have elective or emergency dental treatment in a hospital clinic only. If chronic hepatitis B or C without significant liver dysfunction, then the patient can have elective dental treatment without special precautions. Um, and also, there's no difference for infection control procedures. Now we're going to talk about the lab results, laboratory findings. Viral concentrations are high in blood and serum, moderate in saliva and semen. Components of the lab test. So there's four. HBSAG. This is the hep B surface antigen. It's present when the patient is infective, acute or chronic. The second one, you have the anti-HBC. This is the hep B core antibodies. Present after the patient responds to the hep B infection. Number three, anti-HBS, which is the hep B surface antibodies. This is present with immunity to hep B after the vaccine. This is present with immunity to hep B after infection and recovery. Number four, IgM slash anti-HBC. Antibodies, IgM, specific to hep B core, present when patient is in acute phase of disease and infective. So there was a lot of this that was in red. So I'll quickly go over the highlights of it. Um, so number one, HBSAG, the surface antigen, uh, the patient is infective. Anti-HBC, core antibodies, um, patient responds to a hep B infection. Not infective per se. Anti-HBS, hep B surface antibodies, present with immunity, to be after vaccine or after infection and recovery. So there's two different routes there. And then the IgM anti-HBC is antibodies, IgM specific, core, and when the patient is in acute phase of disease and they are infective. So HBSAG and IgM anti-HBC are both when the patient is infective. So... We don't treat them. <laughs> and then I have another list. It's a chart, really, of interpretation of hepatitis B serologic test results. So they're testing the blood, and this it tells if the patient is susceptible, immune, um, all of that. It's really kind of extensive. I might come back to it if I have time at the end. I had a really hard time uploading uh, the dental materials 
um, seminar because it was an hour and a half long. So I'm, I'm trying to make my recordings not as long this go around so I don't have any problems. So I'll come back to that at the end if I have time and I'll remind myself if when I listen to this again, it's on slide 10. Um, next, HIV slash AIDS infection. HIV is the human immunodeficiency virus. It's a retrovirus that causes AIDS. The virus attacks the immune system humoral, specifically destroys these cells, the macrophages slash monocytes and the T cells slash lymphocytes, helper cells. The disease progresses from HIV infection to AIDS when malignancies or life-threatening opportunistic infections develop and T cells, CD4's cells drop, levels drop to 200 cells slash mm3 or less so 200 cells or less so you know that it's not hiv anymore it's aids when malignancies or life-threatening infections develop and your t-cells or cd4 count drops to 200 cells or less so then it's, it's aids transmission body fluids there's no cure, no vaccine. Dental implications, you have a medical consult. You have frequent RC. I don't know what that means. RC, frequent. You better be getting in there frequently to get your cleanings. Um, standard infection control, no changes. Okay, next is hypertension. Hypertension. The clinical presentation of hypertension is it is asymptomatic except for blood pressure readings. You have early signs and then you have more advanced signs. Some of the early signs can be headache, dizziness, tinnitus, which is ringing in the ears, and an increased blood pressure reading. Some advanced signs are proteinuria, uh, congestive heart failure, left ventricle hypertrophy, angina pectoris, renal failure, and dementia, encephalopathy, and five conditions that hypertension is a risk factor for. Number one, coronary heart disease. Two, CVA. Three, CHF, four, renal failure, and five, arteriosclerosis. Uh, dental implications for hypertension. You have an increased risk of adverse events during dental treatment, which can cause a medical emergency. Um, adverse interaction between local anesthetic with epi and high blood pressure meds. So there's your medical emergency. Um, xerostomia is associated with the high blood pressure meds. Gingival hyperplasia or oral mucosal changes also associated with the hypertension meds. 
um, taste alterations are also associated with the medication. So most of the dental implications are associated with the medicine. You also have a chance for orthostatic hypotension, which is in red. It says associated with high blood pressure meds as well. Acute drop in blood pressure with change in position. Dizziness, lightheaded, possible syncope, which is fainting. And to prevent this, avoid sudden postural changes. Have the patient remain in an upright prevention for several minutes before standing up. So the dental implications for hypertension all uh, arise from the medications pretty much. So just make sure you know what orthostatic hypotension is and how to prevent it by avoiding sudden postural changes. Don't set someone up too fast. Have the patient remain in an upright position for a long time before they stand up. And it's important to know the classification of hypertension. So here's a chart. Um, it says classification and follow-up of blood pressure measurement for adults aged 18 years or older. Um, the chart has classifications, such as normal, stage one, blah, blah, blah. Then the systolic blood pressure, which is the top number, and then the diastolic blood pressure, which is the bottom, and then it has the follow-up recommendation for the dental patient. Remember, systolic blood pressure goes on the top, and diastolic blood pressure is the bottom number, because you can remember it by, I eat a salad on my diet. Salad is first, so salad goes on top. I eat a salad on my diet. Diet is last, so it's on the bottom. And so the normal range is 120 over 80. And it says the recommendation is to just recheck at the next recall visit. Next is prehypertensive. And this is 120 to 139 over 80 to 89. It says... Since it's pre-hypertensive, recheck within one month. If still elevated, have the patient evaluated by a physician within one month. And then you have the actual stages of hypertension. You have stage one and stage two. Stage one, the systolic is 140 to 159 over 90 to 99. It says recheck within two weeks because that's pretty high. If blood pressure is still elevated, have the patient evaluated by a physician within two weeks. And then stage two hypertension is anything over a 160 systolic blood pressure reading, um, over 100 or more diastolic blood pressure reading. At this point, have the patient evaluated by a physician immediately or within one week, depending on the severity and clinical situation. So again, normal is 120 over 80. Prehypertension is between the normal range, 120 over 80, to 139 over 89. And you check within one month.
The actual stages of hypertension, stage one, you have 140 over 90 to 159 over 99. Recheck within two weeks. Have the patient go see a physician within two weeks. And then stage two is 160 over 100 or more. And at this point, it's a medical emergency pretty much. Have that patient evaluated by a physician immediately or within a week, depending on the severity. Next is angina pectoris. Nothing is red on here, but we still need to know this information. Uh, dental implications of angina. Stress slash anxiety of dental appointment can cause anginal attack. An MI, which is a myocardial infarction, or sudden death. Or, no, the MI could cause sudden death, death, but the angina could lead to the MI. Epi can cause dangerous, dangerously high blood pressure. The history of angina pectoris is associated with impaired hemostasis, such as aspirin, plavix, and warfarin. A medical consult is needed if your patient has uncontrolled angina pectoris. Dental management. So there's two different columns. You have an unstable angina, which is like daily attacks, and stable angina. For unstable, it says no elective dental treatment, and emergency treatment is takes place in a hospital setting. Because you don't want to be working on this patient and they go into a full-blown angina attack and then that turns into a myocardial infarction and then the patient can die. So if a patient has stable angina, it's good to let them have oral sedation like nitrous so that they can relax because stress can bring on the angina um, nitroglycerin, make sure there's nitroglycerin available. And I believe you can give one, uh, tablet every five minutes, but you can only do three tablets within 15 minutes. Um, lipid, limit epi in anesthesia and recheck the blood pressure and pulse five minutes after you've administered anesthesia to the patient. Next is the path of blood through the heart. This is something we had to learn in anatomy and then we forgot and had to relearn it in physiology and then forgot and had to relearn it again in physical diagnosis. So um, like my instructor says, it's just something that every primary caregiver should know. So typically I have to look at a picture of a heart whenever I kind of recite the path of blood flow. Um, but I'm just going to look at this, these words and just recite it for you guys. So blood comes in from the systemic circuit into the vena cava, the superior vena cava, down into the right atrium. Then it goes through the tricuspid valve down into the right ventricle. From here, it goes through the pulmonary trunk and out the pulmonary arteries, and it goes into the lungs or the alveolar capillaries. 
becomes oxygenated, comes back in through the pulmonary veins, down into the left atrium. From here, it goes through the mitral valve and then down into the left ventricle. Then it goes through the aortic valve and up to the aorta. And from the aorta, it goes back out to the systemic circuit to oxygenate the organs of the body. There is a note on here, it's very important to know that the mitral valve and aortic valves are most likely to become damaged in hypertension. They're both on the left side and it's the mitral and aortic, most likely to be damaged in hypertension. So probably where an artificial valve would be placed if the valve gave out due to the damage. Next is infective endocarditis, or IE. Predisposing conditions are mitral valve prolapse, which is on the left side, and it's systemic. Aortic valve disease, which is on the left side, and systemic, and that's exactly what we just talked about, those valves being damaged from hypertension. Um, and Another predisposing condition is congenital heart disease, or CHD, having a prosthetic valve, um, IV drug use, but 25 to 47% of the time, there is no identifiable condition. Prevention for IE is you want to follow the 2007 AHA guidelines. They're reviewed and changed every few years. Now we'll talk about the antibiotic pre-medication for these four cardiac conditions. And typically the dentist does not give the prescription for the antibiotic. The patient's doctor who put in their prosthetic valve or joint um, or artificial joint, which is also a condition which requires antibiotic premedication. So anyways, the dentist doesn't prescribe the antibiotic. The patient's uh, doctor typically does. And they're the ones that say the patient needs to be premedicated or they don't. So we don't decide that. The dentist doesn't decide that. It's the patient's doctor. Um, so the antibiotic premedication for these cardiac conditions, prosthetic cardiac valve, Previous infective endocarditis, so if they've had it before, you better premedicate them. Congenital heart disease and cardiac transplant recipients. And it says, there's a note down here that says amoxicillin is a drug of choice. They want to take four capsules of 500 milligrams one hour before the appointment. And then you want to know the alternative um, the alternative antibiotic for amoxicillin if the patient is allergic to the penicillins, and we'll go over that too. Um, but just remember, amoxicillin is the drug of choice. The patient needs to take four pills, and they're 500 milligrams, so that's 2,000 milligrams, and they want to make sure they take it one hour before the treatment. So next... Okay, here's all the dental procedures that require antibiotic premedications. 
Number one, all dental procedures that involve manipulation of gingival tissue or periapical region of teeth. All dental procedures that involve perforation of the oral mucosa. This includes scaling and probing, which is what we do. Also placing orthobands, suture removal, and biopsy. But what's in red is scaling and probing. So if you're scaling or probing during your visit, that patient, you have to make sure that they've been, been pre-medicated and you have to put in your note. Dental procedures not requiring antibiotic pre-medication. Number one, anesthetic injections through non-infected tissues. Number two, taking radiographs. Number three, placing or adjusting orthodontic appliances and brackets, partials, and dentures. Number four, shedding deciduous teeth. Number five, bleeding from trauma to lips or oral mucosa. So those are all fine. They don't need pre-medication for that. Okay, and here, here is the pre-medication regimens, the antibiotics. So oral antibiotic regimens. Like I said, amoxicillin is the antibiotic of choice. For an adult, they will have four 500 milligram pills one hour before the dental appointment four 500 milligrams equals two grams so you might see four 500 milligram pills or you might see two grams it's the same amount now if your patient is allergic to penicillins you need to know this this is all in red they can take cephalexin, which is also called Keflex, and the amount is the same. It's two grams one hour before the dental appointment. Three and four, all of these are one, the patient has to take one hour before the dental appointment. So the next one is clindamycin, also known as Cleosin. This one, an adult, has to take 600 milligrams one hour before the dental appointment. And then the last one is as a azithromycin, which is a Z-pack. Adult must take 500 milligrams one hour before the dental appointment. So it's really one-fourth of what they would take if it was amoxicillin or cephalexin. And clindamycin is almost a fourth as well. It's really close. So amoxicillin, and this is all for an adult, by the way. Amoxicillin, two grams or four 500 milligram pills an hour before the dental appointment. If allergic to penicillins, then they'll take cephalexin, the same amount, two grams, which is 2,000 milligrams, one hour before the dental appointment. Clindamycin, AKA Cleosin, 600 milligrams, one hour before dental appointment. Azithromycin, a Z-pack, 500 milligrams, one hour before the dental appointment. Pre-medication for a total joint replacement. Prosthetic joints, pre-med guidelines. So you, your patient will pre-medicate the first two years after they receive their total joint replacement. High-risk patients will pre-medicate. Um, any high-risk patient that has a total joint replacement who has diabetes type 1, hemophilia, or a previous prosthetic joint infection. 
These are high-risk patients, and they will take an antibiotic to pre-medicate. And then lastly, immunocompromised or immunosuppressed. They're already, they already have issues, and they have a total joint replacement, so they will pre-medicate so that they are being precautious. They don't want to have to replace that joint again. Um, antibiotic prophylaxis is not indicated for patients who just have pins, screws, or plates. This is only for patients that have total joint replacements, like a knee, a shoulder, or a hip. Not for patients that have pins, screws, or plates. Um, the dental procedures requiring antibiotic premedication for a patient with a total joint replacement is the same for a patient with infective endocarditis. And the oral antibiotic regimens are the same as for IE. And that's the ones we just went over. Amoxicillin, two grams, one, uh, one hour before dental appointment. Cephalexin, two grams, one hour before dental appointment. Clindamycin, 600 milligrams, one hour before dental appointment. Azithromycin, 500 milligrams, one hour before dental appointment. And the considerations are that they must be pre-medicated if there's uh, having a procedure that involves manipulation of gingival tissue or periapical region of the teeth. Um, and this includes scaling and probing, placing ortho bands, suture remover, and biopsies. For all of those things, if the patient has a total joint replacement, they have to be pre-medicated. Not if they're just receiving anesthetic or local anesthetic, taking radiographs, placing or adjusting orthodontic appliances in brackets, partials and dentures, just when placing the orthodontic bands, um, not for shedding of deciduous teeth or bleeding from trauma to lips. Okay, now we can move on to the endocrine diseases. We have diseases that come from the pancreas, pituitary gland, thyroid, parathyroid, and adrenal gland. So we'll start with pancreas. Diabetes is an endocrine disease that comes from the pancreas or associated with pancreas. You have diabetes type 1 and diabetes type 2. We'll get more into detail in just a minute. Diabetes type 1 has decreased insulin. Diabetes type 2 has decreased insulin. Next, are diseases from the pituitary gland. You have giantism, acromegaly, and pituitary dwarfism. Giantism occurs in kids, and it's when you have an increased amount of growth hormone. Acromegaly is the same thing, increased growth hormone, but it occurs in adults. So it's like after the epiphyseal plate seal or something. And then pituitary dwarfism is a decreased amount of growth hormone. Now, for the thyroid, there's four different things. You have Graves' disease, thyroid storm, cretinism, and mixed edema. Graves' disease is an increased amount of thyroid hormone, or it's TH. I think it's thyroid hormone. Thyroid storm is the same thing, an increased amount of the thyroid hormone. 
cretinism is the opposite. It's where you have a decreased amount of the thyroid hormone, and that is in kids. In adults, it's called myxedema, and it's, again, a decreased amount of the thyroid hormone. Next is the parathyroid, and it has two conditions. You have primary and secondary hyperparathyroidism. So they both, primary and secondary, both occur from an increased amount of the parathyroid hormone. Next is the adrenal gland. We've got three conditions. Uh, we have Cushing's disease and Cushing's syndrome. They're two different things, but they both relate are related to having an increased amount of corticosteroids and coming from the adrenal gland. Then we have Addison's disease, which is the opposite. You've got a decreased amount of corticosteroids. And now we're going to talk about more detail, go into more detail about diabetes mellitus. Type 1 is due to an absolute insulin deficiency. Uh, you have a 5, this is 5 to 10% of all diabetics have type 1. The peak incidence is puberty and it's associated with autoimmunity. Type 2 diabetes, this is not an absolute insulin deficiency. This is due to relative insulin deficiency or insulin resistance or a combination of both. This is the majority of diabetics. This is 90 to 95% of all diabetics. Usually occurs after age 45. And this one is associated with genetics, obesity, sedentary lifestyle. Um, so we can go over it again and just compare. Type 1 diabetes is due to absolute insulin deficiency, where type 2 is due to relative insulin deficiency, so not absolute, can also be due to insulin resistance or a combination of both. Type 1 uh, makes up 5 to 10% of all diabetics. Type 2 makes up 90 to 95%. Type 3 uh, begins to occur around puberty, where type 2 occurs around 45 years of age or older. Type 1 is associated with autoimmunity, where type 2 is associated with genetics, obesity, and a sedentary lifestyle. The complications for both are the same, and they some of the systemic complications of diabetes mellitus is there's five atherosclerosis heart disease neuropathy nephropathy and retinopathy some of the oral complications of diabetes mellitus is they have an increased risk of infections such as candidiasis which is fungal a periapical abscess or a periodontal abscess if you have diabetes, you have uh, most likely have delayed healing and are susceptible to post-op infections, and it's directly related to the FBG levels. You will have an increased incidence and severity of gingivitis, periodontal disease, and caries. Um, people who have di diabetes, they typically have xerostomia, glossitis, 
dysgeisia, which is a loss of taste, and they often have burning mouth syndrome as well. As far as the lab goes, a well-controlled diabetic has an HbA1c of 7 or less, where a poorly controlled diabetic has an HbA1c of 9% or greater. So they have a lab result, they have an HbA1c greater 9% or greater, we can't treat them. Um, if it's 7% or less, that's fine. We can see them. So let me see. So this part is in red. Oral complications of diabetes mellitus. They have an increased risk of infection such as candidiasis, periapical abscesses, and periodontal abscesses. And then 7% or less on an HbA1c means that diabetes is well-controlled or poorly controlled? Well-controlled. And then HbA1c greater than 9%, then that person has poorly controlled diabetes. Okay, now the respiratory diseases. It's very important just, you know, that you know what all of this stuff is. All of the details doesn't really matter as much like it did when we were in the class in the program in the class um the res respiratory or pulmonary diseases are copd asthma and tuberculosis copd it uh, encompasses chronic bronchitis and emphysema copd is chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder or disease and then the dental management of copd is you want to position your patient in a semi-supine or upright position. So you don't want to lay them all the way back. Um, there's no contraindication for the use of anesthetics. Modifications include avoiding nitrous oxide sedation. So if they have COPD, we're not going to give them nitrous oxide sedation. Uh, we're not going to give them narcotics because it has an impact on the, uh, their ability to absorb oxygen. And then also macrolide antibiotics, also called or known as mycins. We can't give them that if the patient is taking theophylline. Now, if the patient has unstable COPD, then they're only allowed to have emergency treatment only. They can't have routine dental care. Now we're going to talk about um, the dental management of patients with asthma and tuberculosis. The dental management of asthma. Prevent attacks via medical history. So you want to look, you want to make sure that you identify the patient's triggers. If they have unstable asthma attacks, then they're only allowed to have emergency treatment. Make sure that your patient brings their rescue inhaler to their appointment. And you want to ask them, how often do you have attacks? What do you normally do? <gasps> Everything so that you're prepared. Um, and if someone does go into an asthma attack, you don't administer their inhaler for them. They do it themselves. You want to avoid aspirin and NSAIDs. 
in a person that has asthma because they can be potentially possible triggers. Next is tuberculosis, dental management. Standard masks do not protect against TB transmission. Take a comprehensive medical history for signs and symptoms of TB. If they are infectious, they can have emergency treatment only in hospital settings. If positive TB tests and proven not infectious, they can have elective dental treatment without modifications. So if their tests come back positive, but they're proven to be not infectious, it just means that they've come across it at some point in their life. It doesn't mean that they've had TB. It, it can mean that they were just around it and their body fought it off. So, so if it is positive but not proven to be infectious, then they can have elective dental treatment without modifications. Um, we'll talk about tuberculosis a little, a little more in detail. This is an airborne infectious disease with prolonged quiescent period, which means you can have it for weeks to decades and not know it. The cause is bacterial, the bacteria called mycobacterium tuberculosis. It is transmitted via infected airborne droplets of saliva through sneezing, coughing, or speaking. Triggers an inflammatory and granulomatosis response. It primarily affects the lungs, but it can affect any organ in the body. Drug-resistant TB is increasing, so 20% of patients, 20% of patients are not completing their antibiotics, so they're only taking it for a little while, and it's causing their TB to be drug-resistant instead of uh, healing them so that they can get through it and not have the active disease anymore. So there's four types you have to like look out for because some are infectious and some are not. You have primary, latent, secondary, and disseminated. Primary TB is infectious. This is important that you know this. Latent TB is not infectious. Secondary TB is infectious. And disseminated disseminated is infectious. They're all infectious except for latent. So just think of that as later. Like you got it later so you're not infectious, which is really not what it means, but it'll work for memory. Okay, for neurological disorders, we have epilepsy, stroke, Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's. Dental management of epilepsy. You want to avoid the triggers. Light is underlined and bolded in red. Light is obviously a huge trigger for a patient who has epilepsy. Um, also avoid stress. If the patient is having prodromal symptoms, stop the treatment immediately or do not start the treatment. No nitrous because it can induce seizures. So remember that. If you have an epileptic patient, no nitrous for them because it can induce their seizures. Um, CBC or complete blood count, lab testing is done before treatment to see if the patient, the epileptic patient, has leukopenia or thrombocytopenia. 
leukopenia is low white blood cell count. Um, so a low level of white blood cells in the blood, which can interfere with the ability to fight an infection. And thrombocytopenia is just a low platelet level in the blood. And if the patient's epilepsy is poorly controlled, which means they have more than, a, more than one seizure per month, then all dental visits, all dental treatment needs to be completed in a hospital setting. Some of the oral manifestations of epilepsy, and I know this is on there. I know it is. Both of my friends, all of my friends have told me this is on here, so know it. The gingival hyperplasia that patients of epilepsy often have is associated with their medication called Dilantin. Dilantin causes gingival hyperplasia. So it's associated with the Dilantin plus poor oral hygiene. They also have xerostomia, which we know what that leads to. And then they can also have traumatic injuries to their face and their teeth because they literally have seizures. So anything could happen to them. Um, a CVA, which is a stroke. Dental implications of a stroke. Dental treatment can precipitate a TIA or CVA. Patients with a history of TIA or CVA will be put on anticoagulants. So, and this is in red, so they have a decreased hemostasis, which means they, they bleed, they don't clot. Um, if the patients have a history of a stroke, then they, and this is in red, may have difficulty with their home care due to their decreased coordination. So they might have a hard time with their uh, oral hygiene because they're just not as well coordinated. Um, dental management, you have no elective dental treatment for 6 to 12 months after a stroke. Emergency treatment in a hospital setting only. And when you do go to treat them, you must have a medical consult before treatment from their doctor clearing them for the treatment. Oral manifestations of a stroke, they might have dysphagia. This is a difficulty swallowing. They could have slurred speech, making them difficult to understand. Unilateral orofacial paralysis and pereces. So that might be difficult for them to hold their mouth open. Tongue deviates on extrusion. So the tongue kind of does its own thing. It doesn't listen to the patient. And if they have damage on their right side, they may completely neglect their left side. So if they have right side damage, they may, may not brush their teeth on the left side at all. They may just only brush their teeth on the right side. Next is Parkinson's. Uh, dental management of Parkinson's disease. You should limit anesthesia with epinephrine if taking COMT inhibitor meds. Uh, this is in red. Patients may get xerostomia from their medications. So they need frequent recall appointments, fluoride treatment, uh, and supplements if they need them, and also a salivary substitute because their salivary glands are not producing saliva like they should. These patients, just like hypertensive patients, 
they are susceptible to orthostatic hypotension. So you need to place them in a semi-supine position. Move the chair slowly, like don't move it up, don't set them up too quick, and then have them sit there and let the blood drain back to the rest of their body before they stand up so they don't like stand up too fast and pass out. Um, schedule appointments two to three hours after the patient takes their medications so that you both can receive the max the maximum effect of them taking that medicine so they'll, they'll hold still and you can actually get your work done. Oral manifestations of Parkinson's disease is they may have excessive salivation, uh, decreased swallowing, which leads to drooling, um, oral hygiene difficulties, so they want to have frequent recall appointments, and then they possibly have xerostomia. Next is Alzheimer's disease. The dental management of Alzheimer's is they are at a high risk for caries due to their poor oral hygiene and xerostomia from their medications. You want to involve a family member with treatment planning so someone else knows what's going on and they can help the patient at home. Communicate using short words and sentences, like don't overwhelm these patients. Repeat explanations and instructions so that they understand. Um, some of the oral manifestations is they, first of all, they have poor oral hygiene. They have heavy plaque and calculus and possibly periodontal disease. Xerostomia from their medications. Mucosal ulcerative lesions from picking or biting and repetitive behaviors, depending on how bad the Alzheimer's is. Um, candidiasis, and this is associated with xerostomia. They possibly can have root surface caries, which is associated with their poor oral hygiene and the xerostomia. And then they could possibly have oral injuries associated with their accidents and falls. Now we're going to talk about GI diseases. So here are three of the most common. You have GERD, inflammatory bowel diseases, and peptic ulcers. Um, the second one, inflammatory bowel disease, it actually encompasses ulcerative colitis and Crohn's. But we'll start off talking about GERD. You want to, it's mainly the dental management that we want to talk about here. Um, so position your patient in a semi-supine position and educate the patient regarding GI cancer and tooth erosion. And that's all in red. So that's the most important things you need to know. And GERD is more like, it's like heartburn, and it's just an acidic environment in the GI tract and around your teeth. So it, that's why it can cause GI cancer and erosion. Next are peptic, peptic ulcers. Some of the causes are excess acid in the stomach, NSAIDs such as ibuprofen, and then a bacteria called Helicobacter pylori, and it's in 60 to 90 percent 
of these peptic ulcers. So definitely it has something to do with it, with the cause. Dental management of peptic ulcers. Screen for possible referral to physician. So if you think the patient has or may have one, you want to go ahead and refer them out. Um, avoid any type of NSAIDs and aspirin if the patient has a history of peptic ulcers because those types of things can make them worse. Uh, the patient can have routine dental treatment. No modifications are needed, and that's all in red, so know that. The H. pylori, it's actually found in their plaque. So they need to have these cleanings to get rid of that plaque so they don't end up with peptic ulcers again if they've already had them before and got rid of them. Um, some of the oral manifestations of peptic ulcers, you have candidiasis during an antibiotic treatment. So the patient has a, a peptic ulcer, they're taking an antibiotic, and it can cause the patient to have candidiasis. Erosion of enamel. If a patient comes in with severe erosion and you're putting two and two together, you think they might have an ulcer, refer to a medical doctor um, ASAP. So that's always indicated. The patient might have xerostomia from medications, and they could also have mucosal ulcerations. So that's ulcers in their mouth from the helicobacter pylori that's in their stomach. Like, it's so strong. Next is ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. An oral manifestation of ulcerative colitis is... They can have aphthous-like lesions with irregular or granular margins and pyostomatitis vegetans. And pyostomatitis vegetans is an inflammatory stomatitis and it's most often seen in an association with the IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, namely ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. So you can actually see the pyostomatis vegetans in either ulcerative colitis or Crohn's. So it's common. Um, oral manifestations of Crohn's disease are mucosal ulcerations and orofacial granulomatosis. Okay, in orofacial granulomatosis, this is a term used to describe swelling of the orofacial area, mainly in the lips, secondary to an underlining granulomatose inflammatory process. This, it has been reported in association with systemic conditions such as sarcoidosis, sarcoidosis and Crohn's disease. So again, oral manifestations of ulcerative colitis is aphthous-like lesions with irregular granular margins, pyostomatitis vegetans, and oral manifestations of Crohn's disease is mucosal ulcerations and orofacial granulomatosis. Next are medical emergencies. All right, so I have a list of medical emergencies. There's 11 here. The Number one is in red, and I believe it's because it's the most common 
Medical emergency is syncope, which is fainting. Number two is hyperventilation. Number three is asthma. Four, angina pectoris. Five, acute myocardial infarction, which is MI. Um, six is a cardiac arrest. Seven is epilepsy, a grand mal seizure. Number eight is hypoglycemia. It's associated with diabetes. Nine is acute airway obstruction. Ten is anaphylaxis, which is a severe allergic reaction. Eleven is adrenaline toxicity from a local anesthetic. So we'll talk about syncope first. This occurs from a decrease in blood flow to the brain. So the patient becomes becomes unconscious. It's most common. It is the 53% of all dental emergencies, and that was in red. Clinical features include uh, increased sweating and rapid breathing, which is called tachypnea. Both those are in red. Patient will experience a loss of color. They'll turn pale or ashen. They will feel warm. They'll feel nauseous. They'll say they feel bad. They'll be weak or dizzy. And this is in red. They'll have a decrease in heart rate and blood pressure. This is called bradycardia and hypotension. The treatment for this is to position the patient horizontally, elevate their feet. Their head should be lower than their heart. Give them oxygen, monitor their vitals, and administer ammonia if they don't come around. Next is an acute asthma attack. Some of the clinical features of an acute asthma attack is the patient will have shortness of breath. They will be wheezing, and that is in red. They'll have cyanosis, which is a bluish color around their lips. They'll have anxiety. The patient's probably going to freak out and want to get up and walk around or stand up, which is not a good idea. Um... They'll have an increased heart rate, which is called tachycardia, and an increased blood pressure rate. The treatment that you should administer is administer a bronchodilator up to four doses. Let them do that. It's their uh, inhaler. They know what they're doing. They just might be panicky. So you might have to tell them, use your inhaler. Reassure the patient, make them feel better about the situation, tell them it's going to be okay, and then after their bronchodilator has been administered, give them some oxygen. Next is angina. This is pain caused by decreased blood coming into the myocardium. Um, this is in red. The clinical features is that the patient will have moderate to crushing pain like really bad chest pain. The pain can radiate from the chest to the left arm, the neck, and the mandible. The patient will tell you they're having an angina attack because they've probably had one before. They know what it is. The treatment for this is to stop treatment immediately, set the patient up, give them one nitroglycerin tab, put it under their tongue, and then give them another one after five minutes if they need it, and then another one after another five minutes if they need it. No more than three within 15 minutes. But if the pain's not going away, if it continues after 10, 15 minutes, you need to call 911 immediately. If there's no nitroglycerin around, then you need to call 911 immediately. 
an acute myocardial infarction. This is a decreased blood flow into the myocardium resulting in cellular death slash necrosis. Um, clinical features, and this is what the angina turns into if they don't respond to the nitroglycerin. So clinical features, really, really bad chest pain. Uh, the chest pain doesn't go away after they've had three doses of nitroglycerin. The pain is worse than an angina. They break out into a cold sweat and they're scared. Now that's in red. So is the chest pain and not responding to the nitroglycerin. Um, they have dyspenia. Dyspenia is shortness of breath that can have causes that aren't due to an underlying disease. Examples include exercise, altitude, tight clothing, a prolonged period of bed rest, or a sedentary lifestyle. But in this case, it is from the myocardial infarction. Um, they can also experience nausea and vomiting, and that's in red also, and indigestion. The treatment for an MI is to call 911, monitor the patient's vitals, administer oxygen, Give them a dissolved aspirin so it gets to them quicker. And then you can do a basic life support CPR if needed. Next is a cardiac arrest. Cardiac arrest is acute cardiopulmonary collapse. Causes are angina, MI, CHF, and arrhythmias. Um, so this is, this is crazy. The clinical features are sudden unconsciousness, so they could have an apnea and no heart rate. They're just cold. They're out. And within three to five minutes, the patient can have irreversible brain damage. The treatment or response is to call 911 immediately, initiate CPR, go ahead and start an early defibrillation, and administer oxygen. So what is in red? On this one, the cardiac arrest is a heart attack. What's in red is initiate CPR and administer early defibrillation. Next is epilepsy. I already talked about epilepsy. But as a, a medical emergency, we need to understand um, a grand mal seizure is excessive electrical brain activity. It's a seizure. The clinical features are the patient will go into a prodromal phase, usually not noted by the HCW. Um, they'll be suddenly unconscious, and they'll have a loss or slowed breathing. And cyanosis, where their lips around their lips turn blue. They'll have an involuntary movement of limbs, so their arms and legs will start moving around crazy directions. And the treatment for this is to position the patient horizontally and kind of wrap your body on top of theirs to protect them from injuring themselves. That's in red. Monitor their vital signs, administer oxygen, and give medical assistance to evaluate the post-seizure. So when the seizure's over, give medical assistance to this patient. Next is hypoglycemia. This is the one that has to do with diabetes means the patient has a low blood sugar below 
50 milligrams slash DL. So this is important, it's in red, below 50 milligrams. Most common complication of diabetes is hypoglycemia. Clinical features is the patient will have a slurred speech, altered behavior, and sweating. Those are all in red. They'll have tachycardia, they'll start shaking, and have possibly a loss of consciousness. It's really scary, it looks like they're having a seizure. Um, the treatment or response to this is to give the patient juice or soda um, or sugar, anything with sugar in it at the first sign. Having some kind of icing or frosting in your operatory is probably the best thing. And if the patient is experiencing hypoglycemia and they have become unconscious, then you need to call 911 immediately. They need intravenous uh, glucose in a hospital setting. And last but not least is anaphylaxis. This is a life-threatening allergic reaction. A patient can have this if they're allergic to bees and a bee gets into the operatory or allergic to latex gloves or anything. Anything could happen. Clinical features, uh, the patient will have asthma-like symptoms. They'll go into circulatory collapse within minutes and cardiac arrest. The patient or the treatment or response for this is to call 911, uh, set the patient horizontally, administer oxygen, administer epinephrine, give them an epi injection of 0.3 milliliters of 1 to 1,000 epi, monitor their vital signs, and then give them basic life support or CPR if needed. And this concludes the physical diagnosis, medical conditions, and emergencies segment of the dental hygiene seminar. Okay, and now I'm actually going to do a physical diagnosis or medical conditions um, and emergencies part two because I'm going to review from another book and I couldn't put it all on one um, voice memo because I seem to have trouble uploading when it's over an hour long. So I'm just gonna go ahead and do my second one now. So in my Chicago book, the medical conditions that I call, I call that course physical diagnosis, it is under special needs patients. So um, I, I don't think I'm gonna read every single part, but a lot of it's gonna be in here. Um, prevalence of special needs patients is there are over 50 million Americans with special needs. The role of the dental hygienist is to recognize the physical, mental, medical, social, and dental needs and to make sure you model, monitor their vital signs. Communicate appropriately with the patient, caregiver, and other health professionals. Um, and adapt an appropriate treatment plan. Okay, so if a patient, the first thing on here are... Uh, respiratory conditions and it says asthma and this is really important to understand that the patient has an increased risk for caries due to their medications um, especially from like their inhalers and xerostomia is very common um, under their treatment plan it says like for contraindications do not use an air polisher or ultrasonic scalers for an asthmatic patient. 
encourage patients to bring their inhalers to their dental appointment in case of an emergency, eliminate stress, um, do not use aspirin. Some asthmatics have aspirin hypersensitivity. No, or nitrous oxide sedation is recommended in patients with asthma. This is the only respiratory condition to use nitrous oxide. Next is COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. This is a chronic airway obstruction. Comes from smoking, genetics, severe respiratory infections in childhood. Um, may see an increased number of respirations in the vital signs. So COPD encompasses emphysema and chronic bronchitis. Emphysema is overinflation of alveoli and air sacs. They could have dyspnea, chronic coughing with expiration, wheezing, a barrel chest. So that's important. Um, pink puffer. And it's more prevalent in older males. Chronic bronchitis is inflammation of the lining of the bronchial tubes, less air to flow with resulting heavy mucus or phleme. And emphysema is called the pink puffer, where chronic bronchitis is the blue bloater from severe breathing and, and coughing attacks. They have a smoker's cough, and this is more prevalent in females. So I don't really know about that pink puffer and blue bloater. Um, if that helps you, then that's great. The treatment plan for COPD is treat the patient sitting up, basically. Um, don't raise the chair slowly, or not raising chair slowly. And let's see, short appointments. And for COPD patients with emphysema or chronic bronchitis, avoid nitrous sedation. Uh, avoid ultrasonics, power-driven polishers, and rubber dams. Next is tuberculosis, an infectious disease that affects the lungs. Do not treat patients with active TB. If their TB test reads positive, the patient either had TB or had been exposed to TB in their lifetime, they may need a chest x-ray. Um, so for TB patient, avoid producing aerosols. If, they're, if they're act, they have active TB, do not treat them. Next is cardiac conditions. Um, if a patient has any undiagnosed chest pains, refer them immediately to a medical doctor. You want to um, find out if they had any previous surgeries, uh, get their physician's information for a consultation, have a list of their medications, use stress management protocol, and schedule frequent maintenance appointments with a correct chair position so that they're most comfortable and have no medical emergencies. Cardiac arrhythmias, they, uh, they have an irregular heartbeat. 
They don't need pre-medication if they have a pacemaker. Um, no epinephrine. This may uh, cause more arrhythmias. Uncontrolled arrhythmias are a contraindication for dental treatment. If your patient has uncontrolled arrhythmias, you do not treat them. Um, congenital heart disease. Decreased resistance to infections so they could get sick. Um, antibiotic premedication may be indicated. So if your patient has chronic congenital heart disease, call their doctor. See if they need to take antibiotic premedication and have them prescribe them with it. Uh, valve replacement. If a patient has an artificial heart valve, they have to have premedication. CHF, congestive heart failure, patient tires easily. If they're taking digitalis, salivation and gag reflex is exacerbated. Mm, periapical edema is seen because cardiac output does not keep up with the heart uh, or does not keep up. The heart cannot meet the body's demands. There's an inadequate venous return. So a lot of the times people that have congestive heart failure, they've got really swollen ankles. Don't put the patient all the way back in a supine position. Uh, Semi-recline only. And this patient typically sleeps with two pillows. You want to... You want to understand that uncontrolled CHF is a contraindication to dental treatment. That means do not treat. Um, more cardiac, no, 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 myocardial infarctions. Interrupted supply of blood to the heart causes death of the heart muscle. So they'll have a history of ischemia. Symptoms include pain, nausea, diaphoresis, dyspnea, and weakness. May need to postpone treatment for three to six months until the patient stabilizes. So uh, myocardial infarction is a complete contraindication to dental treatment. Possible sedation with oxygen. Uh, nitrous and oxygen could help them. Mm. Oh, and since they have a heart condition, they are only allowed to have so much epinephrine per appointment. So the maximum epinephrine that this patient could have if they have an, a myocardial infarction is 0 0.04 milligrams, and that's really important. Coronary bypass surgery, if a patient has that, a coronary bypass, they, you just have to document it and uh, just see how the patient is feeling. You don't need to m ensure that they've had any kind of pre-medication or anything. Angina, chest pain from lack of, oxy uh, lack of oxygen, temporary ischemia of heart muscle, crushing pain, pressure squeezing, may radiate to shoulders, arms, or mandible. Um, have nitroglycerin available in a sealed glass vial no older than six months old if an angina attack occurs during a dental appointment they get one tablet of nitroglycerin every five minutes no more than three tablets in 15 minutes and give only if their systolic blood pressure is 100 or higher uh so if they're 
blood pressure is really low, you just wouldn't give it to them. Remember, systolic is on the top and diastolic is on the bottom. So 100 or higher is kind of a low rating for the systolic blood pressure. Hypertension. This is known as the silent killer. Patient has higher than normal blood pressure. When they have high blood pressure, they have a potential for a stroke, a myocardial infarction, and renal failure. They can get xerostomia from medications, and they can possibly experience excessive bleeding. There's a potential adverse drug interaction with vasoconstrictors and antihypertensive drugs. Um, just monitor their vital signs. Significant uncontrolled hypertension is a contraindication to treatment. Avoid sudden change of chair position. Uh, this can cause the possibility of orthostatic hypertension from medications. Nitrous oxide sedation is recommended for patients with hypertension because it helps with their stress relief. Do not use the air polisher for a patient with hypertension due to sodium content. Now the stroke. If a patient has a, a stroke, they're experiencing a supply of oxygen to the brain that has been disru disrupted. Contributing factors include hypertension, diabetes, or coronary disease, coronary heart disease. Um, they have often a unilateral or bilateral loss of function and a sudden weakness. Difficulty in communication, unexplained dizziness, nausea, blurred vision, or a droop to the side of the face. Xerostomia from medications, poor oral hygiene, increased caries, jaw instability, and probably a low blood pressure. It lowers to the risk of a stroke. So, they have low blood pressure. They should go to the doctor and get it checked out once they've recovered from their stroke. Do not treat for six months after a patient has had a stroke. Modify their home care devices and instructions. And next is Parkinson's disease. This is a disorder of the CNS causing slow movements, tremors, rigid muscles, the high, there's a higher incidence in males. It's literally 2 to 1 to females. There's a deterioration of the basal ganglia caused by lack of do dopamine. Shuffling slow gait called bradykinesia. Slurred speech. Postural instability. Dementia. Stiffness. Rigidity, rigidity of joints. They have a blank expressionless face. They like to, they stare, uh, they have unblinking eyes, and sometimes they drool. So what do you do for a Parkinson's patient? You make sure that they have uh, modified home care instructions and aids, and an antimicrobial mouth rinse with home fluoride. And now we'll talk about Alzheimer's disease. This is a progressive, irreversible brain disorder characterized by behavioral change cognitive disturbances and confusion, oral complications from medications, memory loss, abnormal sleep patterns, anxiety, uh, later on comes incontinence and need a caregiver all of the time. Composition of the brain differs from a normal brain. Areas of the brain are atrophied, 
and ventricles enlarge. Cells that produce acetylcholine are affected with resulting lower acetylcholine levels, and so that affects memory. Uh, your Alzheimer patient will have shorter appointments. They'll get fluoride and fluoride and antimicrobials are contraindicated. So I don't know what that means. Like the patient can't have fluoride or microbials? Possibly because they can't spit it out. Uh, I'm not sure. Autism. A patient with autism is a developmental disorder that affects brain function. They don't like eye contact. They don't really like to be touched. They prefer a routine, so everything is the same every day. So coming to your office, you need to kind of keep it the same so they know what to expect when they get there. Uh, usually have intraoral trauma due to self-abusive behavior. Uh, perhaps increased caries due to behavior modification rewards. Consistency in care, short, frequent appointments in a calm environment. Teach toothbrushing as a motion and give positive reinforcement. Next is ADHD, developmental and behavioral disorder. These patients have a short attention span. They are deficient in short-term memory. Uh, they're very talkative, but they're, they have hyperactivity and inattentiveness. Short appointments are recommended. Do not give frequent breaks or you'll never get done. Um, the best time of day for an appointment is mid-morning after the patient has had all their medications. And Ritalin is usually the drug that's prescribed for ADHD. Next is epilepsy. It's a system of recurrent or chronic brain dysfunction. Can be categorized by the type of seizure activity, including petite mal, grand mal, or status epilepticus. So, petite mal is mild, grand mal is pretty severe, but a status ep epilepticus is a continuous convulsion. It lasts five minutes or longer. Watch for the aura, which is the sensation preceding the seizure. So watch for that. Do not sit the patient up during a seizure. A seizure patient position is important. Do not place a tongue blade between the teeth. They used to do that. Now they say just protect them, put your body on them. Um, some medications can cause gingival enlargement, such as dilantin. It's also called phenytoin. We have intellectual and developmental mental disabilities. Um, do the tell, show, do instructions for patients so they can, they hear what you're saying, you're showing them what you're doing and then you're having them do it so they can actually uh, be successful in their oral health care. Okay, Down syndrome. This is called trisomy 21. These patients usually have a fissured tongue, macroglossia, which is a very large tongue. They're mouth breathers. They have hypodontia. They have torodontism and gingival and periodontal disease. And often they have crowding of the teeth. Uh, but they don't usually, typically they don't have dental caries. And 
may need pre-medication if the patient has a congenital heart defect. Uh, cardiac issues are present in nearly 50% of newborns who have Down syndrome. They have poor immunity and they may be susceptible to infections. Next is schizophrenia. Increased caries in patients with schizophrenia due to xerostomia or candy being used as a saliva substitute. Next, uh, it says that they're very restless. Decrease environmental stimulation, use a quiet voice, simple routine, and have little or no background music. Depression, depressed people typically have insomnia. They have a decreased ability to make decisions. They have various pain responses. Possible, possible xerostomia from medications. Compliance problems and increased sensitivity to medications. Use positive reinforcement and compassion. And for people with depression, you want to avoid guilt techniques and encourage regular exercise programs. The next thing we're going to talk about is a musculoskeletal condition called cerebral palsy. This is a lack of control of muscles with involuntary muscular movements. They have an inability to swallow. They drool. They, they do tongue thrusting. May have an increased gag reflex. Uh, breathe out of their mouth. Have TMJ problems. They uh, do bruxism, attrition, have caries, and periodontal disease. They may have paralysis, weakness, and What's highlighted is muscle spasms. They have gingival hyperplasia due to the medications that they take. And cerebral palsy is not contagious. It is not a disease. An electric toothbrush may be recommended for the caregiver to use. You want to make sure that they have a stress-free appointment with uh, relaxation techniques. Utilize the fulcrum and an assistant may help with the high-speed suction. Bell's palsy is a paralysis or weakness of cranial nerve 7, the facial nerve, resulting in an inability to control the muscles on the affected side. Occurs unilaterally. Eyelids will not close. Predisposes eyes to infection. Offer the patient protective goggles. Excessive salivation and drooling. Gives a potential for gingival inflammation. Uh, emphasize home care on the afflicted side. Musculoskeletal conditions such as muscular dystrophy. It's a progressive chronic disease of the skeletal muscles with muscular weakness, pain, and mobility. Um, they typically breathe from their mouth. They have an increased saliva and drooling may be common. MS, multiple sclerosis. This is a chronic degenerative disease of the central nervous system. Uh, there's periods of remission. Onset is usually between the ages of 20 to 40. There's a loss of the myelin sheath that initiates the nerves. Um, most oral manifestations are a result of poor oral hygiene or medications, dysarthria, paresthesia, numbness, or orofacial structures, or trigeminal neuralgia. Scoliosis is a condition where the person's spine is curved from side to side, often in a C or an S shape, 
rather than a straight line. It may be congenital, idiopathic, or neuromuscular related. It may appear as a radiopacity in the center of a panoramic image. Now, we're going to talk about diabetes. Diabetes type 1 is insulin dependent. Type 2 is non-insulin dependent, and that makes up about 90% of the cases. Diabetes uh, is a disease of metabolism with inadequate production of the hormone insulin from the pancreas. Secretion of insulin is primarily controlled by the changes in blood glucose concentration. Uh, patients with diabetes are susceptible to bacterial, viral, and fungal, fungal infections such as periodontal abscesses and candida infections. They may have decreased salivary flow, burning mouth syndrome, poor healing, increased caries, and perio disease. They also have a delayed wound healing. Emergencies related to diabetes may occur in two ways hypoglycemia and hyperglycemia. This is important. Hypoglycemia. This is low blood sugar, too much insulin. Hyperglycemia is high blood sugar, not enough insulin. That's very, very important. If your patient has hypoglycemia, which is low blood sugar and too, too much insulin, they could go into an insulin shock. Uh, the most common adverse reaction is, let's see, the patient may have not eaten or has vomited, taken too much medication, or exercised heavily. Symptoms occur suddenly, confusion, anxiety, headache, increased heart rate, which is tachycardia, uh, moist, clammy skin, sweating, shakiness, vision problems, Administer sugar or glucose in the form of a non-diet soft drink. Revival is prompt. Hyperglycemia is a diabetic coma. The patient may have eaten too much sugar, not taken medication, has an infection, or is stressed. Symptoms occur uh, more slowly. Drowsiness, confusion, deep rapid breathing, polydipsia, polyuria, polyphagia, and dehydration, fever, dry, flushed skin, and a sweet or fruity odor uh, to the breath. Activate emergency systems, give fluids, and keep the patient warm. So hyperglycemia is uh, high blood sugar, inadequate insulin, and this is where the patient goes into a diabetic coma, Hypoglycemia, patient has low blood sugar and too much insulin, so the body could be going into insulin shock. Um, okay. Maximum dose of epinephrine for uncontrolled diabetes is 0.04 milligrams. That's really important. Now we'll talk about hepatitis. This is an inflammation of the liver. It says no roots of transmission. Abnormal bleeding and jaundice might be clinical signs of hepatitis. Hepatitis is most, mostly hepatitis C. 
is most asymptomatic. 85% of hepatitis C cases become chronic with liver damage. So you don't really know you have it until your, your liver is already so damaged. Um, hepatitis A and E, the route of transmission for them is oral and fecal routes. It's close contact in unsanitary conditions. Hepatitis B is the virus is transmitted through contact with blood of a person that has hepatitis B by IV drugs with a contaminated needle or by sexual contact with a person infected with hep B. In addition, women with hep B may pass it on to their newborn during the birth process. Hep B is passed through saliva, blood, aerosol, or droplets, needle sticks, and other sharp instruments. Hep C, this virus can be transmitted by exposure to infected, by exposure to infected blood. Um, people can get it from blood transfusions, also by sharing needles by, uh, with drug users. And then saliva, blood, aerosol, or droplets, percutaneous exposure to contaminated blood, and contaminated needles, syringes, sexual exposure, or perinatal exposure. So you can get C like the same way you can get B. D occurs primarily in persons with multiple exposures to hepatitis B. Direct exposure to contaminated blood and body fluids. Contaminated needles and syringes, sexual exposure, and perinatal exposure. So D, you really can't get unless you've had B. Okay, conditions affecting certain organs. Renal failure. Failure of the kidney to perform essential functions. Premedication. With antibiotic, if the patient has a transplant, which is the first time I've heard that, uh, but the best time for an appointment is the day after dialysis. Adrenal insufficiency, Addison's disease, caused by failure of the adrenal glands to produce enough cortisol and aldosterone, also termed adrenal insufficiency or hypo cortisolism which is too little cortisol tb can also destroy the adrenal glands characterized by weight loss muscle weakness fatigue dehydration low blood sugar bronzing or darkening of the skin it's due to intraoral melanotic macules cushing syndrome is a hormonal disorder from prolonged exposure of the body's of the body to excessive production of the adrenal glands and high levels of the hormone cortisol, also called hypercortisolism. So Addison's disease is hypocortisolism, too little cortisol, and Cushing syndrome is hypercortisolism, too much cortisol, maybe due to chronic steroid use. Characterized by weight gain, round, moon-shaped face, buffalo hump on the back, hypertension, 
bone fractures, heart failure, poor healing. Thyroid disease, a goiter is an enlargement of the thyroid gland. Uh, hyperthyroidism and hypothyroidism. Hyperthyroidism is Graves' disease, excessive thyroid hormone in the blood, goiters, nervousness, insomnia, profuse sweating, moist skin, heat intolerant, accelerant, accelerated tooth eruption. Hypothyroidism is a deficient thyroid secretion. Patient has obesity, dry skin, low blood pressure, slow pulse, cold intolerant. They have a delayed tooth eruption. Um, hormone replacement therapy is the treatment. This is the worst sequela for hypothyroid worst sequela for hypothyroidism is a mixed edema coma. So uh, hyperthyroidism, Graves disease, is the opposite of hypothyroidism. Cystic fibrosis, inherited disorder of the exocrine glands, uh, mucus, accumulation of mucus in the lungs, increased viscosity of mucus blocks oxygen, secretions become thick and sticky, do not use air polisher or nitrous oxide. Crohn's disease is a form of IBD. It's an autoimmune disorder. These people have chronic inflammation of the gastrointestinal tract. Um, they have loss of appetite, diarrhea, weight loss. Oral manif manifestations include large intraoral aphthous-like ulcers. Swelling and ulcers of the lips, atrophy of the or papilla atrophy of the tongue, due to poor vitamin absorption. Um, the geriatric the geriatric patient they usually have xerostomia from medications, uh, perio diseases left untreated. Increased risk of oral cancer, dental caries, attrition, abrasion, enamel discoloration, and cracking. Um, drug and alcohol abuse. They also have an increased periodontal disease. Susceptible to infections. Increased risk of oral cancer, leukoplakia, and glossitis. Especially if they drink and they smoke. At the same time, they have, like, an even higher risk of oral cancer. Um, they often also have xerostomia and caries. IV drug addicts says require antibiotic premedication prior to dental treatment, but I've never seen that on anything in my life. I should highlight it and send it to my uh, instructor and see what she says about it. Um, smoking. Smoking is a primary risk factor for lung cancer, COPD, hypertension, heart disease, other head and neck cancers, perio disease, but not caries. Successful interactions to help patients quit smoking include the five A's, and that's ask, Advise, assess, assist, arrange.
Ask at every visit about tobacco use. Advise, clear, strong message. Assess, is the patient willing to quit? Assist, what counseling or therapy will help the patient quit smoking? Arrange a follow-up, contact should be made within the first week of the quit date. If the patient wants to quit, they must internalize the reason for quitting. This is important. Oral manifestations may include nicotine stomatitis, oral leukoplakia, halitosis, precancerous lesions, and periodontal disease. Mm. Nicotine replacement therapy it helps to reduce withdrawal symptoms. Nicotine nasal spray is the fastest. Somebody who is taking cocaine should not have, um, should, the use of epinephrine is contraindicated. It could cause like a heart attack. They would uh, demonstrate restlessness, elation, grandiosity, agitation, euphoria, a tachycardia, cardiac arrhythmias, and an elevation in blood pressure. Oral manifestations include xerostomia, caries, and bruxism, aggressive brushing, and a dark, almost black, soft palate. Never heard of that either. They typically have an increased pulse rate. Doesn't say anything about their eyes. Usually it's... Uh, they have big eyes or big pupils, I think, because heroin, it says they have pinpoint pupils. And remember that because heroin rhymes with pen. No, it's just spelt with pen, like the last three letters kind of. Heroin, pen. Heroin has pinpoint pupils. Okay, if your patient is on methamphetamines, they usually are, they call them a, a tweaker. They have a dry mouth, increased caries. They have rampant caries called meth mouth, um, perio disease, cracked enamel due to clenching and grinding, um, possible say, unsafe interactions with common dental anesthesia, risk of heart disease and stroke, stimulates high levels of dopamine, uh, may see physical characteristics similar to patients with Parkinson's disease. Fetal alcohol syndrome. This is a birth defect in an infant born to a mother who ingested alcohol during the pregnancy. Oral manifestations include a U-shaped or cleft palate, gingivitis, abnormal tooth eruption, and malformation. Children often exhibit mental retardation and learning deficits. Uh, simple instructions, show, tell, do for these patients. Um, scleroderma is an autoimmune disease of connective tissue characterized by an overproduction of collagen, immobility, and rigidity of the skin, tightening of the skin, and lips limits opening of the mouth. They have xerostomia, widening of the periodontal ligament space seen on radiographs, and can possibly have Raynaud's phenomenon, which is a vasospastic disorder causing discoloration of the fingers, and they'll have a bluish appearance. 
HIV, this is an infectious disease from the human immunodeficiency virus, includes reduced CD4 helper T lymphocyte function. Oral manifestations include candidiasis, hairy leukoplakia, plukia, hairy leukoplakia, oral warts, angular cheilitis, recurrent herpetic infections, rampant periodontal disease, Kaposi sarcoma, those purple lesions, they're the only ones that are purple and they are associated with HIV. Increased caries, tooth erosion from vomiting, uh, xerostomia from medications and epithus ulcers. Treat these patients with kindness, respect, and compassion. Treat all of your patients with kindness, respect, and compassion. Use universal precautions and avoid aerosols only for the patient's protection. They can get sick easily. Um, collaborate with physician for blood tests for T4 viral load and platelet counts and the prothrombin time. Consider putting this patient at a three-month re- Okay, so <laughs> this is kind of a condition, but it's not a disease. If you have a pregnant patient, um, this patient is going to be undergoing hormonal changes, so they might feel nauseous, and there may be a fetal sensitivity to drugs. Oral pathology findings include pregnancy gingivitis, pyogenic granulomas. Do not give fluoride supplements, which I've never heard that before. All I heard is that uh, giving fluoride supplements to a pregnant mother does not mean that it'll pass on to the baby. Um, short appointments during the second trimester. Second trimester is really the only time that you can uh, see a patient. And you should not ever give them nitrous or do x-rays. Position the patient in the chair on her left side with a pillow to elevate her right hip so that there's no weight bearing on critical arteries of the fetus. And then the last two, you have leukemia and Ray's syndrome. Leukemia is a type of cancer of the white blood cells. It affects bone marrow and circulating blood. Some patients may have bleeding problems, delayed healing, or are prone to infection. Clinical signs of leukemia include pallor, lymphadenopathy, gingival enlargement, oral ulcers, loose teeth, and recurrent infections. And then Ray syndrome, a disorder primarily affecting the liver and brain, marked by rapid development of life-threatening neurological symptoms. Ray syndrome almost always follows a viral illness such as the flu or chickenpox seen in children and adolescents. The use of aspirin has been linked with Ray syndrome. Acetaminophen is used in place of aspirin for these patients. All right, so this next section um, talks about the silent killer. That is high blood pressure or hypertension. And we'll just go over um, their numbers real quick on their chart. The classification, normal blood pressure is 120 over 80. If a patient is prehypertensive, it is 120 over 80 or higher to 139 over 89. Stage 1 hypertension is 140 over 90 to 159 over 99. And stage 2, it's 160 or more over 100 or more. 
And hypertension uh, gives the patient the potential for a stroke, myocardial infarction, and renal failure. Primary hypertension has no no identifiable cause, and it develops over the years. Secondary hypertension is caused by an underlining condition such as pregnancy, uh, kidney failure, medications, illegal drugs, drugs, etc. And some of the common antihypertensive and major side effects is that most can cause postural orthostatic hypertension, hypotension. Angiotensin converting enzyme, which is ACE inhibitors, they're also, they end in PRILS, P-R-I-L-S. Um, it says postural hypo- hypotension and a dry cough. That's the side effect of the ACE inhibitors or PRILS. It's postural hypotension and a dry cough. Beta blockers, the O-L-O-L-S, if non-selective, use a vasoconstrictor with caution with this one. Calcium channel blockers, it says gingival hyperplasia, xerostomia equals dilantin. And then lastly is the diuretics, thiazides. This causes the patient to have postural hypotension and xerostomia. Limit epi to 0.04. Slowly raise the chair. Do not use an air polisher. Because of the sodium and the, the air polisher powder. Do not treat if patient has uncontrolled blood pressure. Um, an MI, myocardial infarction or heart attack, is necrosis of the heart muscle from a prolonged ischemia, which is a lack of O2 due to a decreased blood flow. So this is why an angina pectoris can turn into a myocardial infarction. These are basically just the medical emergencies that we're covering now. Um, If someone has a cerebrovascular accident or a CVA, this is also known as a stroke. It's from a supply of oxygen to the brain being disrupted. That's called ischemia. Um, A transient ischemic attack or TIA, this is a mini stroke. It's a smaller stroke. The risk of this is that it may be from a thrombosis, which is a small blood clot. And congenial heart disease. This is malformations of the heart present at birth, may have cyanosis and pulmonary edema. Refer to the AHA premedication guidelines, may need antibiotic premedication. Do not use nitrous. Heart cannot pump enough blood to meet the body's needs. It fails to do its job. Tires easily. Peripheral peripheral edema, which is a swelling, because of inadequate venous return from a decreased cardiac output. Maybe on multiple medications, evaluate for xerostomia, epinephrine precautions. Do not use air polisher or ultrasonic scaler. Treat the patient sitting up or semi-reclined. Do not treat if CHS is uncontrolled. 
Valve replacement is a mechanical or tissue replacement of a heart valve. Document. A uh, patient will need antibiotic premedication. If mechanical valve, patient will be taking warfarin or Coumadin, and you are going to have to have a medical consult, lab results from the doctor. Um, you're going to have to get an INR. Respiratory, do not use an air polisher or nitrous with any respiratory conditions except for asthma. Someone has asthma, they need to make sure that they bring their rescue inhaler of albuterol. And last but not least, for this, for this section, we're going to cover the guidelines for antibiotic premedication. Uh, the new guidelines are based on evidence that shows the risks of taking preventative antibiotics outweigh the benefits for most patients. Uh, so the risk of taking the antibiotics that way, the benefits, but they do it anyways because nobody wants to have to go through like a total joint replacement again. It's very painful and it takes a very long time for you to heal. Um, patients who have taken prophylactic antibiotics routinely in the past but no longer need them include people with mitral valve prolapse, rheumatic heart disease, bicuspids valve disease, calcified aortic stenosis, and congenital heart conditions such as a ventricular septal defect, atrial septal defect, and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So, but this is all based on what the patient's medical physician says about it. So, preventative antibiotics prior to a dental procedure are advised for patients with artificial heart valves, a history of infective endocarditis, certain specific serious congenital heart conditions, and a cardiac transplant that develops a problem in a heart valve. Anybody's had any kind of total joint replacement, um, any kind of uh, valve replacements on the heart. The new recommendations apply to many digital procedures, including teeth cleaning and extractions. Patients with congenital heart disease can have complicated circumstances. They should check with their cardiologist if there's any question at all as to the category that best fits their needs. So here's the prophylactic oral antibiotic drug regimen. I hope it's the same as the other one. Um, if the patient is not allergic to penicillin, then you will give them or their doctor will give them hemoxicillin, 2,000 milligrams, which is four pills of 500 milligrams each. Uh, it will equal two grams. It says 30 minutes to an hour before their procedure. And that is on adults. If we're talking about children, they'll take 50 milligrams instead of 2,000, so that's a huge difference. If the patient is allergic to penicillin, um, administer one of the following drugs 30 to 60 minutes prior to the procedure. This doesn't give the amounts though. So cephalexin, clindamycin, azithromycin, and clarithromycin. But it doesn't give the amount, like I said, so. And I think, let's see. That concludes this section.
of physical diagnosis, medical conditions, and emergencies from my second board review book. If you have any questions, please send me an email. Let me know.